0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes.
1: We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
0: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches.
1: If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two month trial to Otter, worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material.
0: Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes.
1: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the journalist, author and editor, Tina Brown.
0: We spoke to Tina about breaking into journalism and becoming editor of Tatler at 25, editing Vanity Fair and the New Yorker in the 1980s and 90s, and her recent book, The Palace Papers.
1: Just a note to listeners that we recorded this episode before the death of the Queen, but it's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Tina, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Could we start with The Palace Papers, your latest book? When did you decide that you wanted to return to the subject of the royal family?
2: I felt that after Megxit, uh, there was really something interesting to say because it was 25 years nearly since the death of Diana when, uh, who I wrote about, of course, in the preceding book about the royals. And also because it's in such a precarious place right now, the monarchy. The big, big difference between when I wrote about Diana and when I wrote about everyone else uh, now is that in those days, the Queen was very much, uh, you know, in her prime, uh, you know, very much at the center of the storm. Whereas now, of course, her health is declining and we are in the last act of the Queen. And that makes an enormous difference to the whole gravity, uh, you know, uh, in, in both senses of the monarchy.
0: I was really struck by this line in the book that you have, and I think I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but it's what is a princess for? And I was wondering if you could unpack that, extending perhaps princess to prince as well. But in 2022, in Western Europe, like what what is it for the monarchy and particularly the British monarchy?
2: It can only be for representational significance. You know, a princess is there to epitomize, one hopes, if they do it well, all that is best, perhaps, about the country's aspirations. So a princess really has to be someone who is willing, essentially, to take on uh, the sort of burden, if you like, of being as appealing about their own nation as they can be. So essentially, it is actually a job for public relations. And um, that's what it's really come down to, because princesses today are not really obliged to marry uh, royalty in other countries. They're not really obliged to make foreign alliances, which, of course, is what princesses were for. Princesses were there for power reasons. They were there to be married off to, uh, as we saw with Queen Victoria's immense brood. Every one of them married somebody in Europe who was royal. Uh, That is not necessary anymore. So their role has really decreased. But I would say if there's one role, it's, it's public relations for their country.
1: You spent two years researching the book and undertook 120 interviews. Where do you start when you're um, beginning a project of this scale?
2: Well, I usually start by interviewing as many people as I can to figure out where the story lies, essentially. And, you know, you don't go in, if you're any good, with a sense of, well, this is the story that I'm looking for, necessarily. You have a bit of that, obviously, when you when you do your book proposal, you're kind of figuring out where you think that the the themes are that interest you. But you have to be, of course, willing to change that theme entirely uh, if you find out something different. So my my sort of technique essentially is to do as many interviews as I can. And then I hear these themes recurring. I hear the themes recurring and I hear I hear interesting insights that I want to pursue and then continue to report out and kind of go down those particular rabbit holes. So I started doing that um, at the end of 2019. Uh, What was difficult, of course, was that uh, COVID happened. So I was planning to spend the whole year in London, actually, um, you know, talking to to people constantly in London. And I then had to do all of it on phone calls and Zooms, which was really difficult, actually, because uh, many of the people that you interview on a story like this one, you know, they're not really, (laughs) they're not the Zoom types, you know. They're not. They're very often... You know, country gentry or their their people in the kind of royal circles who are just not really Zoom types. So it was hard, actually. It was very, very hard. But somehow, I, you know, you you get it, you do it. I mean, you can. And um, it took probably more time. Uh, I would say another, maybe another nine months more than it would have done uh, if I had been able to go to England and, and spend a the year there.
0: How does it work in terms of access with the British royal family, both for yourself and and for other? writers i mean did you obviously like the queen doesn't do interviews you know do you is there an avenue where you can like bid for formal access and does that come with certain caveats or are you operating entirely through your own networks around the the limits of it
2: well i explored formal access but frankly it, it tied my hands too much i mean they're very they're very direct in that sense which is yes you can have some access but there's going to be a lot of uh, provisions for that, you know, a lot of strictures. you you know, you, you, in other words they might wish to have read the copy that you write or have certain topics completely off limits, etc. And I just didn't want to be oh. bound by that, obviously, because it would make it a very bland and boring book. So I considered that and then I thought, no I, I'm going to forego that and I'll just do what I can in a sense with my own networks, so, which, which are pretty good, you know, so, so I was able to get a lot of people very close to the royals you're never going to get the principles to, to talk to you unless you have completely uh, sort of locked yourself into uh, terms. You know, there, there are very few. I don't think Camilla's ever. but She's done like a couple of interviews with she has given a couple of interviews to the male, I think. But they're, they're very, I mean, they're very, very cautious about what you can ask, you know. And I mean, who wants to be in that position?
1: I didn't want to be in that position. I think she did a big splashy thing with Vogue as well recently, which was along those lines. How was the reporting process in terms of the sort of legality of it? I mean, you were reporting on Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein. How did you make that work?
2: Oh, my God. There there were 450 legal changes in in the book. Mm. (laughs) The legal process was really onerous um, because in the past, you know, you could publish a book in America that was different from the one in England of course, what's happened, and it's very interesting, really, I mean, what's happened with uh, kind of global, you know, digital media, essentially, is how do you differentiate any more markets? So actually, it's a bad thing, essentially, for nonfiction writers, because there was a time when you could publish things in America, and if they didn't want to publish it in England, they didn't, and you were protected, and everything was fine. Many publishers now don't want to take any of those risks, essentially, of bits of it being appearing and, you know, in, all over the world. With different libel laws. So in the case of, of this book, I don't know that it's true of every book, but certainly Crown made the decision that they wanted to publish it the same in both places because of that, because of all the pickup that, that he gets and the blurring of those lines. It did protect me because, as we know, the royals have become much more litigious than they ever used to be. Obviously, Harry is wildly litigious now, uh, and as is Meghan. And sometimes, uh, William is, um, in the past, there was very little suing by the royals, unless they had a kind of really open and sharp copyright case, for instance, or something that is so clearly uh, a legal transaction that they knew they could sue and it would be won. So I had to go through the legal process through, through London, you know, essentially. And they were terrific, actually. I must say that they were really good. And they did protect me, which, you know, I'm glad of. But it was painful at times, <laughs> very painful. To have to make so many changes, and in fact, you know, the manuscript I only had two passes of the galley before they wanted to kind of go to go to press with that version. I said, like, you know, how can I do this? I've got like four hundred and fifty legal changes, which you know meant so many paragraphs had to be actually rewritten, as you know, because when you start changing what you can say, then obviously you then have to recast and rethink quite often. So I mean, it it, it was a very hairy close, let's put it that way. But I mean, you know, they did very well and. In the end, I don't really think I lost anything really
0: critical. And when you've got a situation like that where the principals won't talk, but it's a, a kind of litigiously concerning environment, do you have a situation when you're closing it where you have to send right of replies to to the principals, kind of in the knowledge that they won't engage with them? Or how do you how do you cross that bridge?
2: It really, I mean, it depends on everything that you're saying, essentially. I mean, I I, I would just try to report it to the point that I was really clear what I was saying, essentially. You know, I mean, I, I I, would take something out if I felt the only way to get this confirmed is through the principal. Because they're not going to confirm it. In fact, all they're going to do is they're going to say that no comment and then suddenly you've got five PRs on the phone with you. You know, so you're not going to get any confirmation. So the only way you can report a story like this really is is by trying to, to nail it down and to the point that you feel very confident that what you're saying is right. And as I say, take it out if you if you really feel the only person who can tell you this is them.
1: In a more general sense, what are the challenges of of writing about a family that is so overexposed already?
2: Well, I mean one of the issues that was kind of very challenging is just how stunningly unreliable the stories are. You know, I mean that's what really freaked me out, quite honestly. There are so many stories about the royals that have been kind of passed into receive wisdom. That actually you, you start to really report them out and they're just not true. I mean, you just know that it's not. And that was actually extremely worrying because, you know, citing sources sometimes you just thought, well, I can't cite these sources because they're not reliable, you know. So that that was obviously one of the most onerous things. And I mean, I care very much about accuracy, obviously. So yeah, it's it's very, very challenging and quite stunning sometimes when you for instance, give me an example of that is um You know, in every single story about Tom Markle, it says that he won the lottery, that he won a lottery of $700,000 when Meghan was young. And, you know, it just has been in every single story and every single royal book, right, about them, about him, anything about Meghan and Harry. So when I was talking to him, I said to him, well, what happened to the lottery money? You know, did you spend all that on, what did you spend it all on? You know, he says, what? You know, he said, I never won the lottery. I said, wait, what do you mean you never won the lottery? I so said, "It's in every single story. He said, I know. He said, I don't know how it, got it in, how it, how it came about. He said, I think it may have been my son who like, I, I don't know. He said, I don't know how it came about. I said, but I mean, why haven't you corrected? He just said, oh, I, you know, I, I, I can't be bothered. And he said, but they, I've tried to say it's not right, but they keep on printing it. And so I looked up, you know, the person who actually, he said, oh, it started and he named a reporter, you know, who, who, who started with, and I wrote to him, I said, how did this, how did this story happen? She said, "Oh, yeah." She said, "I, his son, gave it to me," and she said, "And, and then I and I published it, and then it turned out not to be right." And I kept telling, uh, uh, you know, the paper that it wasn't right, but you know, it just went on getting picked up. And I just thought, "Wow, that is really a drag <laughs> yeah. for for a reporter because it's like when you have it in so many places, you you can't believe that something like that would keep being reported." But that was the kind of thing I would find again and again. Actually, I mean, the famous story about. Camilla being pelted with bread rolls, for instance, in a supermarket in um, in uh, Wiltshire. Complete fantasy. Never happened. Did not happen. And, you know, she just never used to say a word. I mean, her her philosophy has been somewhat of the old guard of the royalty, which I, I, of royals, which I actually think ultimately has played very well for them in the past. I actually do think the Queen Philip, well, Philip used to sometimes go on the warpath, actually but certainly the queen they never say they never say whether it's right or wrong i mean sometimes the palace do put the record right but a hundred of things go by without them saying a word about it the case of the bread rolls <laughs> which really you know it's a wonderful story right that she was so unpopular that she'd be pelted with bread rolls just didn't happen just totally untrue.
0: I was wondering how your approach has changed or not changed since the Diana Chronicles in 2007. And I was also wondering whether this this lunch that you refer to in the book with Anna Winter and with Princess Diana in 1997, six weeks before she died, was that a kind of point of departure for you in wanting to report on the royals? Or did all that run back to Tatler and back to earlier in your life?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I never expected really to write a book about them. I mean, clearly, when she died six weeks after I had lunch with her, obviously it was, the lunch suddenly became something that was like not really more than an interesting celebrity lunch, if you like, to one that really was engraven in my memory because, I mean, when I looked back at everything she'd said, because I do take keep a diary and I had kept notes, fortunately, uh, I realized just so many things she said was so kind of telling about her death, essentially. I mean, you know, when she said to me at the lunch that, she had no she hated the summer because her boys go to Valmoral and she was left on her own and she had nowhere to go and I would have said at the lunch well that seems um you know hard to believe that you know you don't have you're one of the most desirable you know women guests in the entire world that you wouldn't have anywhere to go she said no you have to understand you know the press are it, it's so invasive that nobody wants to ask me because if they do they have their trash rummaged through their their holidays ruined so I I you know I I don't really have anywhere to go for my holiday. Now, that really was so interesting to me because, of course, it's the reason that she went on holiday with Dodi Al-Fayed because he had, as she liked to put it, all the toys, airplanes, you know, yachts, security. And she thought, well, this will be great. You know, I'll be floating in the Mediterranean with all of this privacy that's been arranged by this powerful, immediate mogul, essentially. But of course, it turned out to be the absolute opposite. That actually, Dodi Al Fayed was a sort of celebrity, a press hound, and certainly his father was a press hound and was constantly tipping off the media where they were. So it was the worst, you know, uh, decision she made in her entire life was to go on that vacation. But it was so interesting to me because she she told me why essentially at that lunch why she was going to go.
1: The point you made earlier about uh, reporting and finding all these untruths as you as you go was that the same as well for the Diana Chronicles.
2: Yes, yes, it it was. But um, in the case of Diana, of course, the reporting was somewhat different because Diana's dead. And more people were willing to talk about her readily, let's put it that way, than they were with the second book. Because, you know, when someone has died, obviously, there is a different feeling, you know, that that it's almost a history, there are people who want to share their memories, etc. So the Diana book, I think, was not easier to report. But... Perhaps more people were more open, uh, and of course, I was able to be in England, which was a big help.
0: We wanted to come back to the Palace Papers later in the conversation, but could we roll back now to your early life? Um, and is it right that you you described yourself as being a subversive influence when you were at school, and you were um, you were expelled from from a number of establishments?
2: Yes, that is that is right. Yeah, uh, you know, I was at these very sort of posh boarding schools, and and uh, they're mostly uh, you know ridiculous in many ways. And I I thought they were, you know, and I would say so. So I wasn't expelled for kind of sexy things like taking drugs or, you know, hanging out, uh, drinking, whatever. It was always about being sort of iconoclastic towards the staff, you know, um, causing trouble as they saw it.
1: And I saw as well in previous interviews that you kept a diary um, throughout your school years. Um, But did you have a kind of literary sensibility from a young age?
2: Yeah, I did very, actually. I mean, it was I was always going to be a writer. I always thought uh, I was going to be a playwright actually, and I did write some plays. Um, uh, so yeah, no, I was always uh, you know top of the class in English, if you like, and and um, and uh, I came from I mean, my mother was very literary, and and uh, yeah, I, I was always a literary child, I suppose.
0: And then when you were at university, how did you kind of feel your way into writing professionally? Is it right that you you did student journalism, but you were also writing for the for the nationals? when you were still at Oxford. And I was wondering what, what role did Auburn War have here? Was he a kind of mentor? Yes, he was.
2: I mean, well, first of all I started writing plays. I mean, and I produced um I wrote and produced a play at Oxford that we did there. And then I it went to the Edinburgh Festival and it won a prize and it was done uh actually on the fringe at the Bush Theatre. Um it's called Under the Bamboo Tree. So my real sort of focus was writing plays. Then um, a friend of mine became the editor of the student magazine and she wanted me to get involved as a writer. So I did, of course, and I discovered what fun it was, you know, writing for a magazine. We would do interviews and there was a there was a series which was called Oxford Superman, in which uh, the colonist, me, uh, had to go and interview people who'd been at Oxford, essentially, and been huge achievers. My first sort of passion to interview was over a which might seem a strange person to want to be. To interview, but I was obsessed with um, I was obsessed with the literary you know pages of the New Statesman, uh, uh, which were at that time absolutely wonderful. I mean, the New Statesman in the seventies, you know, when I was at Oxford, was such a brilliant magazine. I mean, it had Julian Barnes, Martin Amis, Christopher Hitchens, um, Ian McEwen. I mean, amazing people writing for this one little mag, literary magazine, and Auburn Moore, whose column I absolutely adored, and he also had his private icon. So I wrote and asked him if I could come and interview him. And I went off, actually with Stephen Glover, <laughs> who is now a writer on the Daily Mail, but he was, um, at that time, I was dating him amazingly. And so I wanted someone uh, to come with me and drive me to, to to Somerset. And we went and had lunch with uh, Auburn Moore in Somerset and uh, at the house that uh, had been Evelyn Moore's house. And he was absolutely enchanting and hilarious and wonderful. And then we sort of, after the interview, which I did, um, we then kind of kept up a kind of pen friendship, you know, and he he was, you know, became the sort of mentor of mine. He said, well, I must introduce her to this and I must introduce her to that. And he invited me as a guest to a lunch, uh, a, a private eye lunch at the Coach and Horses Pub in a room above the Coach and Horses Pub in Soho. And this lunch was considered a really kind of, you know, secret kind of, you know, cool thing to be asked to the staff of Private Eye would invite politicians and then they would sort of all talk off the record and it was all very loose and interesting. And Anyway, so I was invited to that as this sort of student who was just a friend of Auburn Wars. But actually what I did was I wrote it all up myself. So I kind of turned the tables on them and did a very entertaining, I have to say, sort of um, satirical piece about them. And they were stunned because they'd all been thinking of me as this sort of, you know blushing blonde you know completely sort of chauvinistic atmosphere and they never thought that I'd have a brain in my head let alone turn you know, write a piece like that so it was published in the student magazine in ISIS and they they just all it would cause something of a stir you know because all of these writers at the private eye lunch all were kind of amazed by this piece that had got them all nailed so it kind of did the rounds and it and it, and it ended up being uh seen by the editor of the New Statesman uh the magazine I worship. And he invited me to write. So while I was at Oxford for the last year, I did sort of, I became the kind of Oxford correspondent, if you like, of the New Statesman. And that's how I started writing. And that's how the Sunny Times noticed my work. And it all began essentially with the private eye launch.
1: And am I right in thinking as well that you developed a kind of knack for publicity while at Oxford? I read about a boat party that was covered by Cosmopolitan. Is that right?
2: It was covered by Cosmopolitan. I can't remember why. Yes, it was. It was. It was a. Uh, we had my, me and my best friend. We 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 took over a, a barge uh, and had our eighteenth birthdays there, uh, and it was wonderful. Actually, yeah, it did end up in the, the Cosmopolitan. I absolutely cannot remind, remember for the life of me why. Perhaps because by that time I was writing for the New Statesman, so I became the kind of who is the student writing for the New Statesman?
0: You've written about your uh, relationship and later your marriage with Harold Evans as as a scandal. That was the the word you chose. I was wondering how that um became a, a scandal at the time. And then looking back and some of the discussions that have taken place about power dynamics in the workplace and and things like that, looking back from from now, how do you how do you feel about that period of your life?
2: Pretty much inconceivable now, essentially. I mean he was twenty five years older than me and he was editor of the Sunday Times and I was, you know, twenty five, so um twenty four. So I mean, looking back it was, you know, amazing essentially. But I mean I guess I mean I started writing the Sunday Times. He then, you know, I became known to him, obviously, and and it was kind of love at first sight when we met each other. I then decided to leave the Sunday Times immediately because, and I'm very glad I did, because I never wanted it to be thought or said that that was why I was at the Sunday Times. And so I left, and that was actually really why I got into editing, because after the the Sunday Times at that point was the greatest newspaper in the world without question. I mean, it really was an astonishing newspaper, and everybody used to wait for it to arrive, like we sort of, anyone who cared about journalism or writing or anything. I mean, the Sunday Times was a brilliant newspaper start to finish. And that was the only place I wanted to write um, after the New Statesman. I mean, you know, to get there was the pinnacle. So I didn't want to write for any other newspaper. um, And I didn't know what to do after I left the Sunday Times. I started writing for the Telegraph, but it just wasn't the same. I mean, I didn't want to be in the Telegraph. I wanted to be in the Sunday Times. So I decided to kind of become an editor, essentially. I mean, I was, my pieces were noticed by the new owner of the Tatler and he was looking for somebody with a social eye to edit Tatler. And many of the pieces I've written had those kind of, had that social eye, if you like. And he offered the job of editor of the Tatler to every single editor of any note. They'd all turned it down. I was 25 and he decided like, you know, I'll go for youth. <laughs> so he offered me the job. I would never edited really anything. And that's how I sort of flipped, essentially. I mean, you know, if, if, if I hadn't met, if I hadn't fallen in love with Harry, I would have stayed at the Sunday Times, for sure, and been, you know, one of the kind of, you know, big-time writers. But because I couldn't, um, my career took a different path.
1: You said that Harry taught you everything you know about, or everything about what it is to be an editor. Um, what did you mean by that?
2: Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I was so enthralled with him as an editor. I mean, to watch Harry editing was like, he was the Najinsky of newsprint, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. I mean, he could do it all. You know, he could write pieces, edit pieces, transform pieces. I've never seen anybody transform copy like he could. I mean, it was quite incredible. He would just take a big pile of notes and he could just vacuum it all up and out it would come a wonderful piece. I, he, he was extraordinary like that. So he could do that and he was brilliant on photography. He was brilliant on layout. He uh, he could he did the headlines he could do, I mean you know he he was an extraordinary investigative editor in the sense of having the insight team sort of you know who he would uh, sort of marshal to do these remarkable investigations so I mean he was an amazing editor so I was able to watch that firsthand and and you know when I took over Tatler I didn't even know how to do a layout I'd never done anything like it and he actually showed me how to do a layout by drawing there was a piece we were right doing about um, Princess Margaret's um, uh, sort of this courtier, Colin Tennant, who who Lord Glen Connor, as he then was, it became. Uh, And his kind of major's like uh, uh, island that he bought you know, which we all, of course know now, but he bought this island and turned it into this kind of of, uh, tempest-like island, if you like. And I wrote this big piece on him. It was a great story with wonderful pictures, but I had no idea what to do with it. And Harry just drew it on the sitting room wall. I mean, I'll never forget that he just sort of said, his picture. He got the projector because that's what you had to have then. And I didn't see the picture in the picture that I had. I mean, I saw a picture with lots of people in it and the hero sort of off in a corner. And he just showed me how you could blow the picture up, you know, and crop in and make that into a spread. And he drew it on the wall and then he wrote the headline on top and wrote the kind of, you know, drew the, the the leg of copy down the side. They said, that's how you do a layout. I mean, literally, he taught me how to do everything. He taught me how to do captions. I mean, he gave me, I'll never forget him giving me a sort of tutorial on how to write a caption and how a caption, you know, people make the mistake of telling you what you see in the picture instead of telling you what you don't see in the picture, that kind of stuff. I mean, he was an extraordinary teacher, actually, too. I mean, his book, his last book he wrote when he was 88, um, Do I Make Myself Clear, was a remarkable, remar- it's a wonderful book for anybody Wanting to learn how to write, honestly, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's full of kind of, full of kind of wonderful, uh, media lore, if you like, uh, and, um, you know, I mean, he says wonderful things like, you know, a, a newspaper is an argument on the way to a deadline. If there isn't an argument, it's not much of a newspaper, you know. I mean, he had he had so many amazing, sort of philosophical um, thoughts about editing. So, a long answer of saying yes, he taught me everything I know.
1: Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the journalist, author and editor, Tina Brown. It's time for the next instalment of our segment, where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week, we're going to hear from the novelist David Mitchell on a piece of advice he wishes he'd had at the start of his career.
3: You just do it. It's like the Nike advert. Just do it. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're in the mood, it doesn't matter if what you're writing is any good, just do it regularly, whether you feel like it or not. And pretty soon you will find, if this is the right thing for you to be doing, you will find that you hit a kind of a virtuous spiral point where, where you begin to gain, where the pleasure you begin to gain from just seeing a decent sentence. Um, a half decent sentence, and then turning that half decent sentence into a decent sentence, and turning that decent sentence into a pretty damn perfect sentence. The pleasure you get from that, you get a hit from it, and you want more of it. And that overcomes reluctance, headaches, bad days. You just want more of that. You just get to that point, then you know what I'm talking about. And uh then you need the discipline to stop, not to start. That was
1: David Mitchell. And if you were interested in what he had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Tina Brown.
0: I read this story that when you were at Tatler in the early days, the budgets were so tight that you used to send someone down with review copies to sell on the Charing Cross Road to make money. Is that... Is that true?
2: Absolutely true, yes. We had a budget of £10,000 a year. And I used to write for the magazine, you know, we usually wrote two, two or three stories. I used to use, I had three different names. I was my name. I was Christina Evans, which is my sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, my name. My, my born name is Christina and I was living with Harry Evans. So it was Christina Evans. And then there was Rosie Boot, which was my sort of parody name, which I would write uh, kind of parody pieces under.
1: To stick the boot in, specifically, or
2: Rosie um, Boot was a real person. Actually, she was she became marchioness of Tavistock. She was um, <laughs> she was uh, uh, the, the, the Rosie Boot columns were about um, men, eligible men, and I would just satirise um, men who you know who were at that time um, considered eligible.
1: You moved to Vanity Fair in nineteen eighty three. Um, what were your assessments of the publication's strengths and weaknesses at that point when you offered the role?
2: Well, there weren't any strengths I mean it was you know what was what was so entertaining about it all was that there we were at Tatler this tiny band of sort of you know we were a very talented band I have to say I mean all of the people that I had at Tatler went off to huge careers like Nicholas Coleridge, who's you know what became the editorial director president of Condé Nast. And, Uh but when I had him he was an, a sort of right out of Cambridge and sort of intern figure but there were so many great gifted people there and the magazine we were putting out was, was terrific, you know, so we, we were bought by Condé Nast and we had heard that they were launching Vanity Fair, so we were all kind of, you know, we were sort of drooling over the thought of it. I mean, I was obsessed with the great mag- American magazines like, like The New Yorker and Vanity Fair, so I had all the kind of books, you know, and picture books about the old Vanity Fair, etc. So we were kind of waiting and we, they were spending a fortune. I mean, they were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this launch, they were sending people you know around the world to kind of collect photography and art pieces and buying the entire uh, Marquez book you know a chronicle of a death foretold and i mean they were just money i mean we were so jealous you know a tatler with no money no budget really um and they had all this money so we were expecting something incredible to come out and then when it came out we were stunned i mean i never forget opening that magazine in um in the office of towner uh, in london and we all kind of crowded around and i said look it's here it's here let's you know let's look at it and we just looked at it and said this is this just this is sucks you know it's just everything about it it had horrific art direction i mean it was like a typographical zoo i mean it was all of this kind of upside down type and huge headlines and you couldn't read it or understand it the covers were these kind of very pretentious black and white brooding pen photographs of artists like Susan Sontag or you know Philip Roth i mean the last thing you want is a picture a black and white close up of philip roth with his finger up his nose i mean this is not an appealing face i mean you know writers should be read not looked at right so it was really bad and and very pretentious too very kind of lofty and uh self admiring so we just thought, this is just terrible. And sure enough, it came out, it it had two issues. I don't one issue. The first issue just bombed. I mean, it was the worst reviews I've ever read for anything because it had, had a lot of hype too. And of course, the media in America was quite irritated by all the hype. This is going to be the greatest magazine in the world. Huge kind of hoardings with great pictures. Like, it's coming soon, Vanity Fair. You know, they did the classic mistake of, of too much hype. And so it was completely... Um, Hand, and quickly uh they were looking for a new editor and at that point um Cy newhouse the owner of conan asked uh, asked if i would come and sort of consult essentially because i'd had such success with the with, new yorker they the uh, tatler they thought well maybe this kind of young turk would come in and sort of give us some help and you know consult so i left i did leave i had left just left tatler at that point because i was tired of it And so I went to America and I thought, this is great. I mean, you know, I'll have three months in New York um, at this Vanity Fair. And even though it was terrible, I still thought it was very exciting to go and be there, you know. And they had put in this guy, Leo Lerman, who was this antique character who was um, the features editor of Vogue. And he was a kind of, you know, he had a kind of Leo Tolstoy beard and he was like the darling of, you know, I mean, he's... Friends with people like Lillian Gish. I mean, I'm talking about like somebody who was, as far as I was concerned, he was 125 years old. And he was put in as the editor. And uh, so I was with him, essentially, supposed to help him edit Vanity Fair, but of course he he hated me because he was very, very jealous and very competitive. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it at all. And I I remember, you know, again, I mean, I Leo Levin was kind of a legend, but as soon as I sat in any meetings with him, I, I was thinking, but he, these ideas are just terrible, you know, and they're ridiculous. And he could not do a layout. He didn't know what to do. He was absolutely uh, out of his depth, is the truth. So I thought, well, I'm not staying here um, because all I'll do is kind of be tarred with this brush of, of Leo. And I have to say, I, I, it was quite kind of ballsy of me, I will say, at the time, because <laughs> I was, you know, basically, Cy Newhouse begged me to stay and and be his kind of deputy, essentially doing it while he was the kind of ambassadorial figure. And I basically I said no, because I'd either give me the magazine or I or I don't want to be helping him because all that will happen is I will help him and then I won't get to be the editor of Vanity Fair. Which was, you know, when I look back, was sort of I mean I'm proud of the fact that I said it actually, because most people I think would have just at that age have thought, well I'll I'll take this job, you know. Um Harry was completely supportive. I mean he was in England, but You know, his attitude was, I must do what I needed to do for my career, which is always what was wonderful about him. Um, So I went back to England and I left them there with this kind of turkey, thinking to myself, it's so bad, they're going to have to fire him and then they'll come and call me up. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, it was a turkey for another three months. And out of the blue, literally out of the blue, this was in uh, December 1983, I was on vacation with Harry in uh, Barbados at the time. And I got this phone call from Alexander Lieberman, who was the grand czar of the rush, of the editorial side, asking if I would come for lunch with, with Cy Newhouse. I said, well, <laughs> I mean, I'm in Barbados, but um, okay. And I went to have lunch. They offered me the job and they said, would I start in January, January the 5th? So I never went back to England again for three years, actually. And after that, um, Harry went back to England. He packed up the house. He got a job. You know, consulting, being a professor at Duke for a bit while he figured out what he wanted to do. And um, that's what it was. And it was a, a, an amazing, an amazing life change, really.
0: There were two moments from the Vanity Fair period I wanted to ask about, particularly. The first was, I forget the year exactly, but when you did this photo shoot with Reagan at the White House. So I was reading about that as a kind of inflection point that it looked like the new houses might pull the plug on the magazine and that this was a a turning point for that and the second was getting William Styron to write about his depression could you tell us about those those two moments
2: well I mean yes it was very exciting actually uh I mean Cy, Cy was about to close the magazine we'd had it we'd had eight or nine months and it really the advertising wasn't coming and I was also struggling to get. I mean, I redesigned it immediately, but I was I was struggling to get the content that I needed. It was very hard to get my vision of a, a mix of great reporting, cultural material, fabulous photography, all of these things together. Most difficult was to get the great reporting because a lot of people didn't want to write for the magazine at that point because it had really had. You know, it's a bit of a joke. People people were taking a, a wait and see attitude. Um, and then we got actually three stories in a row, which kind of changed changed our whole trajectory. The first was. Um, getting a photo shoot with the Reagans with Harry Benson, the great photographer, uh, and William Buckley was going to, I said, write a piece about the marriage, which kind of no one really had kind of done in in, in a way that, you know, with any kind of splash. So the idea was to get the two of them together. William Buckley would write a piece and Harry Benson would do the photographs. And, you know, it it was one of those amazing things where Harry Benson set up a boombox, as we had in those days, playing Nancy with a laughing face. And the Reagans arrived for the photo shoot. And as they walked in, you know, Nancy said, look, oh, Ronnie, they're playing our song. And they literally broke into a foxtrot together. And can you just imagine this happening now? It just would never happen, I think. I mean, people are so sort of scared now of doing anything remotely offbeat.
1: And no one knows how to foxtrot either.
2: Nobody knows how to foxtrot, for sure. But the fact they did that was just so wonderful. Anyway, the pictures were amazing. And then they did this great sort of Hollywood screen kiss, which we splashed in the magazine as the Reagan kiss, which just sort of went everywhere. And the other big stories we did were uh, Dominic Dunn's wonderful, uh, wonderful piece about the uh, Klaus von Bulow, uh, um, you know, murder trial. Um, and we had Helmut Newton take these pictures of of, of Klaus von Bulow, all dressed in black leather, which helmet persuaded him to do so of course nobody could have looked kinkier or more dark or more <laughs> exactly what a someone on trial for murder doesn't want to look so that got massive attention and the third one was it was my diana story my princess diana story because you know i actually broke the news that uh, the marriage was in trouble and it was called the mouse that roared and it was um a story about how everything was going wrong in the wales's marriage and <clears throat> Diana and Charles were so furious, the palace was so angry, they did something they almost never do, which is go on television to deny it. And um, of course, as soon as that happened, I knew that it was true because the palace never denies things unless they are true, as far as I can see. Um, and when I had lunch with her, that lunch she mentioned at the beginning, she actually smiled and she said to me, you know, you got it right, didn't you? And I said, well, I did. but <laughs> You two went on television and said it was untrue. Um, but uh, so those those three stories essentially sort of turned it around. The the Styron story came quite a bit later. Um, after about two years, three years, Vanity Fair became very, very good, I have to say. I mean, I did manage to get the vision and succeed in that sense, you know, because I wanted every piece of the magazine, every bit, every element to be, you know, as good as it could be. And that meant that social stories, if they were going to be social stories, had to be the most entertaining and the best, like with Dominic Dunn. The reporting had to be absolutely first class. And I got terrifically good uh, reporting from people like um, uh, Alex Shumatov, who wrote brilliantly about Africa and about the rainforest. And I mean, just wonderful pieces. T.D. Allman, who did incredible work on people like Noriega. And then I wanted to have the essay element, you know, to be as good as that and um it really sort of is an, ex- an example to me about how you really nothing is a waste of time if you are an editor you have to get out of the office and go to things and i was invited actually anna was involved in this too her husband uh dr david Schaffer, um, was a specialist in uh teenage suicide and so she asked me to join her table actually at a at an event that was a fundraiser for uh a sort of the suicide uh you know survivors of suicide and to my surprise William Styron was there at another table and it was quite a sort of intimate affair I mean it, you know obviously the only people interested in attending such an event have some reason connection to be at it um so there was an atmosphere of a sort of trust and intimacy um so uh William Styron just suddenly got up and started talking about his own depression and how he had tried wanted to kill himself and how deeply you know uh, you know uh, traumatic uh, this whole passage in his life had been so you know I beetled over of course and asked him if he would write about it for Vanity Fair he said let me think about it and the next day he actually called me and he said you know I've been thinking about it and I would like to do it and so this amazing piece came in and I called it Darkness Visible um, after the line from T.S. Eliot and uh, it had a huge effect actually It it was a very very Important piece. I mean, a sixty minutes did a big piece on it. Um, you know, it, it really had traction, as they say. And he then developed it into a book with the same title. Um, so that was a that was. A, I was very proud of it. You know, I felt that we'd done an amazingly uh, good piece of literary journalism because it's beautiful writing, um, and also said something important about depression, which had made an impact. So that was one of our the things that Vanity Fair that it was very um, rewarding to do, to be able to create such a kind of glossy package that had these incredible, incredible plums in it.
1: Time is marching on, so we'll move on to your time at The New Yorker. Um, Is it true that you said you only felt that you could take that position because your parents had moved over to help with childcare?
2: Well, I wanted to do it once I was offered it, but I was nervous about it. Yes, I had very young children at the time. And I may have turned that down if my mother hadn't come because I didn't know what I was going to do about my very young children. So I knew it was going to be much more uh, high pressure than Vanity Fair because it was weekly. So I'm abidingly grateful that they did.
0: We saw this line at least attributed to you talking about 50,000 words about zinc um, as a kind of comment on the old New Yorker. Although I heard it was also actually a story about grain on, on the prairies. Perhaps you can enlighten us on that. But what was it like coming in and, and kind of shaking up a magazine that that was such an institution? And what was your vision for it?
2: Well, I was a very I had a very clear vision for it. I mean, I, I felt that it was a sleeping beauty. I really did. The more I looked at it, the more I thought it was a sleeping beauty. And what really turned me on to do The New Yorker, because I wasn't quite sure at first, I thought, is this really going to be something that resonates with me? Um. Was when I looked at the Harold Ross editions, when the, you know, the very first editions of the New Yorker in the 30s by Harold Ross, the editor, I absolutely it was so different um, from the New Yorker of the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, it was far more fast-paced, it had so much more irreverence, it was visually much more appealing. Um, You know, they would have full-page drawings by people like Peter Arno and Charles Adams. I mean, big, full-page, wonderful drawings. Shorter pieces, the talk of the town was actually squibs. I mean, the talk of the town pieces were like 150 words, many of them. And I loved all the kind of uh, titles of, of, you know, how he named things like, you know, personal history or annals of this, annals of that, you know, all of this stuff. I thought, this is great. I'm going to revive it. I'm going to totally go back to the DNA of Harold Ross. And that's what I did. I commissioned a redesign that was entirely inspired by the Harold Ross um, uh, New Yorker. And the redesign, I think, was really, really good. And uh, I I made a decision, which was a good one. I said to Cy Newhouse, who was the most impatient man in the world, because he offered me the job at the end of May. I said, I'm not going to come into this office until September. I am going to work on a different floor, redesigning the New Yorker and rethinking the New Yorker. And I did do that. I held him to it, even though he was so, you know, kept saying, I need you in and I need you. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do the redesign separately. And I did that with a brilliant French designer called Caroline Mayo, Mio, And she, uh, her redesign of the New Yorker was really wonderful. And at the same time, it allowed me to have time to reach out to all of these new illustrators like Edward Sorel and Art Spiegelman, all these people who never who never uh, done any illustration work for The New Yorker, and I revived you know, all of that illustration that had gone from the magazine. And I brought in Richard Avedon um, as to be the very first um, uh, New Yorker photographer because they didn't have photographs really at that time at all. And so I said to Avedon, you know, will you come and be our only photographer and just create with your clean, stark, essentially, you know, black and white imagery? a look that would be appropriate for the New Yorker, which we did. And uh, now they have other photographs, but as well, but, um, Dick re- really helped to create the look that we wanted.
1: And when you took over, was it really a place where writers weren't asked when they would file and that there were people on staff who kind of hadn't written anything for years or indeed decades?
2: There were two kinds of writers at the New Yorker. There were the writers who were there because they were good and the writers who thought that they were good because they were there. Right. Now, that category, that second category, was a lot of people. And they were the ones I had the biggest trouble with, because they were people who were actually very mediocre writers who had been sort of allowed to kind of... You know, Sean was very old at the end, William Sean. And you know how it is when you get older, you're less inclined to make tough decisions. And so the garden had become overweeded with a lot of writers, frankly, who were second-rate. And then there were the other writers... The wonderful writers like Roger Angel, John Updike, Lillian Ross, they were the people I treasured. And actually, they they loved my editorship. I mean, they, they gave me huge support. I mean, Roger Angel was thrilled with my editorship because I actually persuaded him to not only write about baseball, but write about his own life. And he loved that pivot. And, you know, I actually took a lot of the writers who were older and gave them a fresh way of, of writing. So they were actually thrilled. I mean, I had John Updike writing about everything under the sun. I mean, wasn't, you know, taking him out of book reviews and just doing everything under the sun. Harold Brodke, you know, who was this huge kind of egghead, you know, I mean, I I sent him to the Oscars, you know, I mean, he had a fun, he wrote the most wonderful piece and they actually loved that. The trouble I got was from the other crowd who were very resentful of my, frankly, being demanding. And I fired, laid off, as you're supposed to say in America, um, 52 52 writers, actually. Um, and I had about another 45, including David Remnick, Malcolm Gladwell, Jane Mayer, uh, you know, um, Anthony Lane. I mean, you know, I, I brought in an, a Jeffrey Toobin, a, a, an amazing new cadre of young writers. Not so young now, but they were then. And uh, they weren't every bit as good as those classic older writers. Some of them much better, I would say.
0: And how did the economics of the magazine work at that time? Were you expected to turn a profit or was there an understanding that this kind of rebuild was, was going to be expensive?
2: Well, I mean, the magazine was losing money when I took it over prodigiously and losing advertising. That was the major fear because the, the readership had got so old that the advertisers were bailing out. Cy Newhouse was fabulous in that he said to me, you need to completely you know, re, re-energize this whole thing and there wasn't the time to wait till you lost those 52 writers etc to hire the other one so there was going to be a period where it was expensive because you know you can't go in and fire 52 writers i i had to each one of those was a conversation that would take time and i tried to do it elegantly and i tried to do it properly and i didn't want any hurt feelings and bad you know bad behavior to, towards people so you couldn't do the purge before you sort of brought on the others, because otherwise the magazine would die. There wasn't time. I mean, it literally was a dying magazine. So he knew there was going to be an expensive period, and there was. But we got the we got the losses down. It was it was losing. I think it was about eighteen million when I took it over. I got the losses down to twelve million by the time that I left. And then it took David another three or four years to get the losses. You know, get get it really uh, on a good footing. It was going to take another five years, and it did. It did. But you know, that was what was good about Sign. He understood you can play the long game here, and you need to do what's right. And, you know, we did.
1: It's a rule of the podcast, actually, that we talk about money. Um, So to sort of remain on that theme for a while, um, how has money worked for you throughout your career? Um, Am I right in thinking that you once uh, brought in a lawyer to help with your sort of personal salary negotiations?
2: You bet. I mean, actually, he was a great, the super agent, Mort Jankler, who died just recently. Yes, I mean, I'm not good at negotiating for myself at all. So I, I always prefer to work with an agent, you know, which is not exactly uncommon these days. Um, it was uncommon at Condé Nast when I did it because no one had ever done that before. But he was certainly very effective for me because I discovered I was wildly underpaid compared to Arthur Cooper, who was editor of GQ. I discovered that he was paid a lot more than I was, even though I'd turned around Vanity Fair and, um, you know, had made it into uh, the sort of flagship magazine. Um uh, maybe because, you know, I happened to ask being, you know, a, a young woman when I arrived, but I was very underpaid and uh, didn't really realise it because I was having such a great time. And then I did start to realise it when I learned what Arthur Cooper was paid. So that's when I brought in uh, Walt Jankler, who did who did a fabulous job of getting me
0: very well paid. Could you tell us about Talk Magazine, so the immediate post-New Yorker period, and then what was, what was Harvey Weinstein's role in that whole venture and what was he like?
3: Oh,
2: God, he was a monster. I mean, you know, I, I, it was the most absurd thing I ever did in my life. I mean, I left The New Yorker. He basically, I, I wanted to make The New Yorker more than just a magazine after seven years. I I, I felt that I wanted to uh, turn it into something that was, you know, uh, a book company, um, a radio show, pre-podcast, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, movies, essentially what everybody's trying to do now. I asked, but I mean, this was like in 1992, right? So I was really ahead of the curve on that. And I was right, as we've seen, because that's what they're trying to do now. It took them all of that time. And Cy just didn't see it. He just basically said, stick to your knitting. This is a magazine. We're not going to ever do those things. And I was frustrated. And I was in that mood when Harvey Weinstein came knocking and said, what you need to do is a magazine that does movies, books. I mean, he basically sang from my hymn sheet. So, you know, this was the Harvey Weinstein of the English patient. And of you know, um, Shakespeare in Love, it was that era. So he was at that time the golden tastemaker, essentially, uh, who uh, could figure out how to market um uh you know, material that was that was high quality, which is exactly what I wanted, because I felt that that Nast did not understand really how to market uh the New Yorker. You know, I kept telling them to raise the subscription rate because I thought people would pay a lot more, but they wouldn't. If you can believe it, they insisted on keeping the subscription rate at $12 an issue, which was insane. I said, people pay $50 for the New Yorker. I mean, now I don't know what it is. It's like right up in the stratosphere. And they did eventually adopt that that technique, which David Remnick had been, you know, quickly saw was exactly the right thing to do. But it took him several years to, to, to get them to do it. So, I, you know, Harvey looked like, to me, someone who could do that. But of course, that's not what he was at all. I mean, he was a completely, um, you know, he never sexually harassed me. I'm not, I was not, you know, the kind of uh, woman that he was his type, thank God. Um, but he was a, such a bully and he was, he was, I mean, I knew I'd made a mistake like within five minutes of going to work for him, you know, such. so that was a disaster for me. But, you know, Talk Magazine, I loved and I thought that it was a really, really good magazine and I still think it's a really, really good magazine. Um, interesting, whenever I do book signings, there's always somebody there with a copy of Talk Magazine, always, who says, I loved Talk Magazine, will you sign it? And um, it really was a great magazine. Uh, in some ways, it had some of the best content I ever did, actually. So it was very upsetting to me to have to fold it.
1: I wondered what your assessment of the print magazine landscape is today. Um, I think in one interview you said you hadn't picked one up in years and that you yourself read everything online. Um, what do you think the future of, of print magazine journalism is?
2: Unfortunately, I think it's a kind of niche um I mean, maybe it goes back to being what it was in the early days of Vanity Fair in the 30s when, you know, only 30,000 people read Vanity Fair in the 30s. Um, it's going to be a niche thing. And, you know, screens have won, haven't they? So, yeah, um, sadly, I mean, I, I, I regard magazines as a real art form, you know, the uh, seduction of photographs and type and, you know, and, and how a headline is played and covers and all of that beauty. Of, of the craft of magazines um, essentially has got is going by the board and alas i don't think you're going to see many of them surviving so that's a great sadness but at the same time i can't be a hypocrite i read everything on my phone you know so <laughs> that's where we are and you know i started the daily beast don't forget which was after a talk um i launched the daily beast digital news site and i found it enormously exciting to do i found the daily beast I had some, some of the greatest fun in my life doing
0: the Daily Beast. We're coming up against the uh, end of our time limit, but a last question from me, um, and kind of circling back to the Palace papers now, was I was reading the the acknowledgements at the end of the book, and it's a kind of extraordinary tour through the, the media and political landscape on two countries. I was interested in this idea of being an outsider and being an insider, because another Point that I read is that when when Harold, your late husband, was first hired as a as a sort of national newspaper editor, his it, he was hard because he was an outsider, wasn't there? This line like you don't know anyone, like you're not beholden to powerful forces, and and this kind of crusading that that he did with thalidomide and and things like that. How have you found throughout your career walking that line between being an insider and being an outsider?
2: Well, I mean, sometimes it got me into a lot of. Difficulties actually. I mean, validly fair. I mean, I, I would always support the story, you know. So um, I offended a lot of people actually, you know, with stories that I stood behind um, with people that I knew, essentially. And that's not pleasant, actually. It's the kind of least pleasant part of being an, an editor, essentially, is when you know you're about to publish a story that somebody you like is going to hate. Uh, so, you know, I did a fair bit of that. At the New Yorker and at Vanity Fair and at the Daily Beast, you know. And, but it's also the price you pay for being any good, you know, because, uh, you know, I mean, one of the worst things I had to do was uh, Adam Gopnik wrote the most amazingly brilliant, but really excoriatingly negative um, piece about John Richardson's book on Picasso, actually. And um, John, and it actually was being published by my husband at Random House to make it even more difficult. And John Richardson was really a very good friend of mine. Um, but I, I would never have occurred to me to not publish it. And he, he never spoke to me. I mean, my God, he was, the, the, you know, the rage and, and that came my way after it. Um, even 20 years later, we were put together at a dinner party and he saw who was there and he just stormed out of the room, you know. So, you know, yeah, well, one just has to stand by the, the piece. otherwise you're no good as an editor.
1: And a final question for me. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the different projects you work on today and whether you still dream of being um, the president of an Oxford college?
2: <laughs> I do not dream of doing that. No, I think academia is absolutely the worst possible <laughs> uh, challenge in today's uh, environment. It's, you know, I think you spent all your time arbitrating, uh, you know, woke insurrections of one kind or another. No, it's not my ambition to be that at all. I've actually spent the last uh, six months, a uh, few months, raising a legacy fund for my, husband's, um, for my husband, uh, the Sir Harry Evans uh, uh, um, uh, Fund. And uh, it, I've managed to raise $7 million, which I'm very proud of. And we are going to use it to underwrite um, young investigative journalists uh, in an early stage of their career. So there'll be a, an annual fellowship in investigative journalism, which will is in partnership with Reuters, who, who uh, Harry worked very happily with in the last 10 years of his life. So Reuters will be hosting that investigative uh, journalist in their newsroom. And then we're going to do an annual uh, investigative journalism summit in London um, where we, you know, showcase, spotlight, um, talk about and talk to uh, brilliant journalists from globally, from all over the world. So that's something I'm very excited about, actually, and I, I, it's consumed a lot of my time. I feel like I'm working for my husband all the time right now, which was always his ambition. So uh, that's what I've been doing, essentially.
0: Brilliant. Well, look, thank you, Tina, for a fascinating and wide ranging conversation and wishing you all the best with your projects going forward.
2: Simon and Rachel, fun to talk to you.
1: That was the Always Take Notes interview with Tina Brown. She's on Twitter at Tina Brown LM. And her latest book, *The Palace Papers*, is published by Century. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Tina?
0: It seems to me like a, a kind of another extraordinary slice of journalistic media history. In some ways, not to say that she is a, a figure of the past, but that she had this incredible meteoric career. You know, editing magazines in her twenties, crossing an ocean, doing the same thing then, and and I was really interested to get the sense of how she kind of laid the foundations of. The modern new yorker you know that she took this magazine that was uh, a, a cultural landmark but had become i don't know stayed is the right word or or slightly you know not not really on the zeitgeist and, and lifted that up um but yeah i just you know she's a force of nature and it was great to have her on the show what did you think rachel
1: yeah it was one of those careers that was um hard to cover in 50 minutes we didn't really get into the daily beast um her work there so that goes to show how much there was, how much ground there was to cover. It was excellent to have an editor of her calibre on the show, um, especially as we've had some New Yorker writers, but not any editors. So as you say, it was um, fascinating to hear about her approach at Tatler and then Vanity Fair and the New Yorker. And obviously her book as well has become very timely. And what have you been working on, Simon?
0: Um, I've been doing a whole lot of admin for my new book, um, of setting stuff up in the Alps, uh, which has been fun but hard work and um, i'm about to travel to new york to meet my uh, the editor of the american edition which i'm looking forward to and always um, enjoy getting back to new york um so yeah it's been it's been busy but it's been fun what about you rachel
1: i am still doing my editing shift um for the newspaper so have been looking after some really interesting pieces about iranian cuisine and the world cup um and also edited one on 50 years of hbo which obviously is very in my wheelhouse um So yeah, it's been good.
0: This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acum.
1: And me, Rachel
0: Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar.
1: If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, Please do.
0: Many thanks. Goodbye.